This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So over the weekend, politicians in both parties released statements in response to Hamas's attack on Israel. And in my opinion, almost all of them missed the mark with a few exceptions. And we're going to talk about that because I think that what U.S. politicians say is important given how much influence America has in that region. But having said that, though, I do want to first look at the events that unfolded on Saturday. And as Common Dreams reports, Hamas launched a surprise operation on an unprecedented scale against Israel early Saturday by land, air and sea. Hamas's military chief, Mohammed Deef, said the operation was codenamed Al-Aqsa Flood. The day marks a tremendous strategic failure and defeat for Israel, even as it bombs Gaza in retaliation. The Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza says the death toll of the ongoing Israeli attacks on Gaza has risen to 198, with 1,610 injured. And Israel's Channel 12 reports that the Israeli death toll has risen to at least 40, and more than 740 people have been injured. Now keep in mind that all of these numbers are subject to change, and it's very difficult to track these kinds of things as it happens, but just know that there's a lot of people who are suffering right now, and it's a very uncomfortable, nauseating thought, but that is the reality. So we're not going to focus too much on specific numbers, but the situation is very, very sad. Now, even though this all may feel sudden to international observers, tensions have been escalating all year in the lead up to this outbreak of violence. As the Washington Post explains, as of September 19th, before Saturday's outbreak of violence, 227 Palestinians had been killed by Israeli troops or settlers this year, according to UN figures, with most most of those deaths, 189, occurring in the West Bank. At least 29 Israelis, mostly in the West Bank, were also killed this year as of the end of August, according to the same UN database. Now, to zoom out even a bit further, the violence from this year also has not occurred in a vacuum, and that context is absolutely crucial. Now, as this graphic demonstrates, Palestine has been quickly disappearing with more land being illegally annexed and occupied by Israel's far-right government every single year. In fact, Amnesty International declared this a system of apartheid and for very good reason. Every single year, more and more Palestinians are forcibly evicted from their homes and displaced. They're segregated and they have no civil rights, no civil liberties. And in Gaza, the situation is even worse. As Common Dreams explains, Israel has been imposing a land, air, and sea blockade on the Gaza Strip for nearly two decades, impoverishing much of the crowded enclave's population and denying millions sufficient access to clean water and other necessities. Children who make up roughly half of Gaza's population have been disproportionately affected. So we're talking about a very young population in a densely populated area that is now being bombed again. And already before this current outbreak of violence, people in Gaza had no economic prospects. Unemployment was above 40%. They're effectively living in the world's largest open-air prison where no one can leave or enter without Israel's permission. And this was already a humanitarian disaster, but that problem is going to be exacerbated because of this current wave of bombing. I mean, more than half of Gazans already needed aid. 3% didn't have access to potable water. And 
Now that's going to get worse. But if you are a Gazan, resisting this blockade was literally, is literally a matter of life and death. But the problem is that there's just no good options for resisting. Because when they resist using violence, obviously, Israel responds predictably with even more violence. But when they resist peacefully and they protest, they're still brutalized. In fact, you can't even peacefully resist here in the United States because the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement is banned in dozens of U.S. states. So we're not even allowed to advocate for peaceful resistance here in many states. So we're in this horrible situation, and it looks like there's no end. There's a power imbalance here, and only one side can choose to end apartheid, choose to end all the suffering, and that is Israel. And as long as Israel chooses to maintain this brutal system of oppression and subjugation and apartheid, peace is never going to be possible. And this is what politicians have to acknowledge. You can't just look at what happened in a vacuum. You have to zoom out and look at the entire set of circumstances here and understand that this sort of violence is inevitable. And as this graphic demonstrates, violence has been common in the region for decades. But one side always suffers disproportionately, and that is because they lack power, they lack resources, whereas the other side has all the power, all the resources, not to mention international support, and that's why we always see the same result. Now, having said that, does this justify Hamas's slaughter of innocent Israelis? Absolutely not. Targeting civilians is a war crime. It's never okay. It's bad regardless of who does it. And I hope that people condemn the slaughter of innocent civilians because that is not okay. And it's really important to remember as we see these news stories here that we shouldn't conflate the actions of Hamas with the actions of all Palestinians. And in the same breath, we shouldn't conflate the actions of the far-right Israeli government with the actions of Israel's citizens. And I say this because my country, the United States, has done horrible things. It is a colonizer country. We invaded Iraq when I was just a young man, couldn't vote yet. And I think probably many, if not most, Americans supported that. But I didn't. But we were lied to. There was a lot of propaganda. So I think that even though in a de democratic situation you can elect your government, you still in the end don't have total control of what your government does. And in the same way that I wouldn't want to be blamed for the actions of my government, for the atrocities of my government, even if I am indirectly responsible because my tax dollars funded, I wouldn't want people to view Palestinians as responsible for the actions of Hamas in the same way, I wouldn't want people to view Israelis responsible for the actions of their government. When it comes to war, we've got to remember that people are people and human life is precious. And that's one thing that I want people to understand. Now, I've seen people compare this to 9-11 and say that this is Israel's 9-11. But if they think that that is indeed the case, then there's a lesson that they should learn. Because on 9-11, 3,000 Americans tragically died, but over a million people in the Middle East that had nothing to do with that perished in response. And with the way that things are going, it seems like Israel is gearing up for a similar response, which is horrifying. In fact, the defense minister of Israel, Yov Gallant, said the following. So they're cutting off electricity, food, water, and gas to people he deems as animals.
Now ask yourself this question. Do you think that he's referring exclusively to Hamas here? Because even if he is, the fact that he's telling you that all 2 million plus people in Gaza are going to lose power and water, that tells you everything you need to know about this power dynamic. The situation is untenable. I mean, imagine if a government that you couldn't vote for controlled your access to food, water, power, and you weren't allowed to leave ever unless you got their permission. You couldn't view your family. Or imagine if you were evicted from the home that your family lived in for generations at gunpoint. You had no choice, but you had to leave and you were displaced. I mean, this situation is obviously going to foster resentment. You would be very mad. You would want to retaliate. So this situation creates an environment where tensions are always going to be hot. Because when you are putting people in this predicament, they're going to want to resist. And the reason why a fascist like Benjamin Netanyahu keeps getting elected is because he's promising to keep Israelis safe. But he's been lying to them. And year after year, that lie becomes more apparent because so long as the system of apartheid exists, violence like this is going to continue to occur and innocent Palestinians as well as innocent Israelis are going to continue to suffer and lose their lives. And again, life is precious. Every single person deserves to live a life with dignity and peace. But that is not possible so long as this current system is in place, right? It's only possible if Israel ends its illegal occupation of Palestine and people get real about actual solutions. A two-state solution is dead. Nobody wants to admit that. I mean, how are you going to do a two-state solution when Palestine has essentially been erased? The only feasible solution at this point seems to be a one-state solution with equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. But Israel is able to perpetuate this system of apartheid and segregation because countries like the United States, colonizers ourselves, they allow it to continue, right? And so long as we allow it to continue, it will continue because there's no reason for Israel to stop doing what they're doing, right? So this is why I do want to take some time to focus on what U.S. politicians are saying because I think that their takes are important here. What they say matters. It reverberates around the world. Now, many politicians condemned Hamas's attack and rightfully expressed sadness for the lives lost in Israel, yet they failed to mention the humanitarian disaster taking place in Gaza that created these conditions, and they kind of like talk about this without giving you the full context. Others, namely Republicans like Nikki Haley, use this attack by Hamas to effectively justify genocide against Palestinians with rhetoric that is overtly fascistic. So needless to say, I was very disappointed by what a lot of lawmakers said. Uh, there are a lot of them that frame this as unprovoked, an unprovoked attack, when that's obviously not true. But there were a couple of exceptions. A couple of lawmakers who said something that stood out because they gave people the full context. But of course, they were attacked for it. But before we get to that, let's look at what they said. First and foremost is Congresswoman Cori Bush, who released the following statement on Twitter. Quote, I am heartbroken by the ongoing violence in Palestine and Israel. I mourn the over 250 Israeli and 230 Palestinian lives that have been lost today and the thousands injured. Following attacks by Hamas, militants on Israeli border towns and Israeli military bombardment of Gaza, I strongly condemn the targeting of civilians 
civilians, and I urge an immediate ceasefire and de-escalation to prevent further loss of life. Our immediate focus must be saving lives, but our ultimate focus must be on a just and lasting peace that ensures safety for everyone in the region. Violations of human rights do not justify more violations of human rights, and a military response will only exacerbate the suffering of Palestinians and Israelis alike. As part of achieving a just and lasting peace, we must do our part to stop this violence and trauma by ending U.S. government support for Israeli military occupation and apartheid. Now, on Instagram, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, also released a statement that was similar, saying, I grieve the Palestinian and Israeli lives lost yesterday, today, and every day. I am determined as ever to fight for a just future where everyone can live in peace without fear and with true freedom, equal rights, and human dignity. The path to that future must include lifting the blockade, ending the occupation, and dismantling the apartheid system that creates the suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that can lead to resistance. The failure to recognize the violent reality of living under siege, occupation, and apartheid makes no one safer. No person, no child anywhere should have to suffer or live in fear of violence. We cannot ignore the humanity in each other. As long as our country provides billions in unconditional funding to support the apartheid government, this heartbreaking cycle of violence will continue. Now, I think that these were really good statements, right? They condemned the violence. They're not saying, yes, what Hamas did, that is legitimate resistance. They're just saying the context matters here. The situation has led to this point and violence will continue if nothing changes. But the reason why these statements were so controversial is because they're calling for the United States to end aid to Israel, while others are saying we should actually increase aid to Israel. Now, after we see the responses to that, you'll understand why they think this is uh, so controversial. And spoiler alert, their interpretation of these statements are incredibly disingenuous and bad faith. But nonetheless, the Hill reports Quote, U.S. aid to Israel is and should be unconditional and never more so than in this moment of critical need, Democrat Richie Torres said in a statement to Jewish Insider. Quote, shame on anyone who glorifies as resistance the largest single-day mass murder of Jews since the Holocaust. It is reprehensible and repulsive. Furthermore, quote, two of my colleagues called for America to end resistance to Israel, despite the countless images of Israeli children, women, men, and elderly, including Americans murdered by radical Iranian-backed Hamas terrorists. Democrat Josh Gothheimer said in a statement obtained by The Hill. It sickens me that while Israelis clean the blood of their family members shot in their homes, they believe Congress should strip U.S. funding to our Democratic ally and allow innocent civilians to suffer. Now, the U.S. ambassador to Israel also chimed in on Twitter saying, how much more blood needs to be spilled for you to overcome your prejudice and unequivocally condemn Hamas, a U.S.-designated terror organization? Hundreds of innocent Israeli civilians massacred in cold blood on a holy day, babies kidnapped from their mother's arms and taken to Gaza, an 85-year-old woman in a wheelchair, and a Holocaust survivor taken hostage. Is that not enough, Rashida Tlaib? Now, what these disingenuous, bad-faith liars won't tell you is that both Tlaib and Bush are not calling for an end to aid to Israel to punish them for being attacked. They're not celebrating the violence here. They condemned it, as you saw. But what they are calling for is an end to aid, specifically to pressure Israel to end the occupation and apartheid so long-lasting peace can be secured. Our aid to the Israeli government is enabling a fascist regime that is literally facilitating a system of apartheid. But supposed left-wing politicians in America, those were Democrats, by the way, they're siding with the approach taken by the far right in Israel, not the left wing in the United States. But can you guess who agrees more with Tlaib? 
the left in Israel, because Ofer Kassif, a member of the Knesset's leftist Hadash coalition, echoed the same points made by Talib, saying, We condemn and oppose any assault on innocent civilians, but in contrast to the Israeli government, that means we oppose any assault on Palestinian civilians as well. We must analyze those terrible incidents, the attacks, in the right context. We have been warning time and time again, everything is going to erupt and everybody is going to pay a price, mainly innocent civilians on both sides. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened, he said. He continues, the Israeli government is a fascist government, supports, encourages, and leads programs against the Palestinians. There is an ethnic cleansing going on. It was obvious the writing was on the wall, written in the blood of Palestinians, and unfortunately, now Israelis as well, he added. So I think it's really poetic to see a Jewish-Israeli politician echo what a Palestinian-American politician is saying. Both of them are interested in long-term peace and stability, but they acknowledge that you can't make that a reality so long as the current situation continues. And we all know that the occupation will continue in perpetuity so long as America allows Israel to do this. But we're using our permanent seat at the UN Security Council to veto any and all resolutions that would reign in Israel, make them stop violating international law. And since we're not going to stop, they're not going to stop. And as a result, a lot of innocent people on both sides are going to continue to suffer something that the left in Israel and the United States acknowledge. But what Democrats like Richie Torres and Josh Gothheimer don't realize now is that they are on the wrong side of history. And they're going to realize that at some point, I think, right? They're going to look as foolish as the people who defended apartheid in South Africa. Might take some time, but that's where this is going, because I think more and more people are realizing that the current situation is completely unsustainable. You can't have one country control another country like this or control a group of people like this where they can't leave. Their access to food and drinking water is controlled and now being withdrawn. It just it's not sustainable. Right. So if you want peace, the situation has to end change needs to happen. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to look at a CNN interview by Dr. Mustafa Bargadi, which was actually really, really good. So he represents the Palestinian National Initiative. He is not affiliated with Hamas or the PLO. But what he says is the same thing as just a couple of U.S. lawmakers who got it right. And his words are crucial here because this is somebody whose experience is living under apartheid, living under the system of oppression in the West Bank. So what he says here, the context that he gives us is crucial. I represent a democratic Palestinian movement called Palestinian National Initiative, which is non-Fatah and non-Hamas. And we're, uh, we're uh, of course, I am not affiliated with Hamas. But I think this situation uh, that has evolved is a direct result of the continuation of the longest occupation in modern history. Israeli occupation of Palestinian land since uh, 1967. This is 56 years of occupation that has transformed into a system of apartheid, a much worse apartheid than what prevailed in South Africa. Uh, yes, uh, maybe Hamas did not recognize Israel, but the PLO did and the Palestinian Authority did. What did they get? Nothing. Since 2014, the Israeli governments would not even meet with Palestinians. And what you see today is a reaction to several things. First of all, settlers' terrorist attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank that has evicted already 20 communities in an act of ethnic cleansing. 248 Palestinians who were killed by the Israeli army and settlers in the West Bank, including 40 children. 
attacks on the holy sites, the Muslim and Christian holy sites by Israeli extremists, as well as declaration of Netanyahu that he will liquidate the Palestinian rights and the Palestinian cause by normalization with Arab countries. And he dared even to go to the United Nations and carried in the United Nations a map of Israel, which included the whole of the West Bank, all of Gaza, all of Jerusalem, as well as the Golan Heights. He declared the annexation of the occupied territories. So, of course, Palestinians turn to resistance because they see that this is the only way for them to get their rights. The question here is not about dehumanizing Palestinians as is happening and calling them terrorists. It's about asking the question, why the United States supports Ukraine in fighting what they call occupation, while here they are supporting the occupier who continues to occupy us? And that right there is a damn good question. It's easy for Americans to see why resistance to Russia's genocidal war in Ukraine is both just and necessary. In fact, Americans literally support violent resistance against Russia, which is why we're sending them tanks and weapons. However, when it comes to Israel and Palestine, resistance in all forms by Palestinians is deemed unacceptable. Like, put aside Hamas's attack. Dr. Bargatti is not affiliated with Hamas. He doesn't represent Hamas. But he is a Palestinian in the West Bank. He's talking about even peaceful forms of resistance being met with condemnation. If you're a Palestinian and you protest peacefully, you are brutalized. You see violence. But even if you're in the United States, peaceful support for BDS, a peaceful movement, is met with censorship, which is a violation of the First Amendment. Americans need to think deeply about why this discrepancy exists, right? What is it? Is it a racial component? Why is this double standard here? Is it just U.S. geopolitical interests? Examine why that's happening, and if you hold this bias, why you have this bias. But I do want to get back to that interview and hear some more from Dr. Bargatti, because he's going to point out this double standard even when it comes to civilian casualties. Now, to be clear, all of the casualties are bad, and I feel like it's pretty easy for people to condemn it all, because none of the suffering is good. It's it's horrible, right? But he points out that there's never the same concern for civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. People only see the harm done to Israelis, which is bad, but they never see what's happening simultaneously to Palestinians. It's just completely tuned out. I do not accept attacking any civilian. Uh, uh, I do not accept that Israelis attack our civilians. But look at what Israeli planes are doing now in Gaza. They, they are bombarding houses. They're bringing down to earth, and you've shown, you've shown that on your, uh, on your screen, uh, whole apartments, whole buildings, high-rise buildings are brought down to the ground, and we already are reporting, uh, receiving uh, reports about families who are killed, uh, nine people in one family, ten people in another family, including children. I do not want any civilian to be hurt, neither by Palestinians or by Israelis. But the question is how to end that. Will it end by attacking Gaza Strip another time? Israel has already conducted five wars on Gaza. One of them lasted 51 days. They destroyed everything. This did not stop Hamas, did not stop resistance. There is one way to stop any violence, and that is to end the Israeli occupation. And that is for the United States to be fair.
They cannot say that Israel has the right to defend itself, but we, the Palestinians, don't have the right to defend ourselves. Let me remind you of the case of Shirin Abu Aqli, who was not only Palestinian, but also an American, a very peaceful journalist. She was shot to death by an Israeli sniper. Was anybody indicted? Was anybody taken to court? No. 52 other journalists were also killed. Our first aid providers are shot at. Our doctors are shot at. This should stop. And the only way to stop it is to tell Israel, you have to respect international law. You have to end this illegal occupation and accept Palestinians as equal human beings. Bingo. I don't think there's anything I can add to that. What he said there was really important. Now, one last clip that I want to leave you with is uh, this video that I play whenever Israel-Palestine dominates the news cycle. It's a clip of the late, great Michael Brooks, who explains that his Jewish values teach him to oppose apartheid. And on top of that, he explains that the situation isn't actually that complicated, even though mainstream media might present it as complicated in actuality. It's pretty simple. And I'm going to leave you with his words of wisdom. So it's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. It acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. And just as like a thought experiment, IDW people, if we know that if somehow a population of Jewish refugees ended up in West Bank in Gaza and an Arabic government in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv had an open air prison in, in what, you know, Jewish Gaza, which they bombed with white phosphorus, they killed civilians indiscriminately and they had no uh, provisions for medicine. They had an embargo that blocked food, that the electricity wasn't running, that there was an over 48% unemployment rate, life expectancy and malnutrition statistics were horrifying. The, uh, one of the major uh, policymakers in this hypothetical Arabic Palestinian state said, we need to put those Jews on a diet. In the West Bank, there was another Jewish area where there was a little bit more autonomy, but there was regular Arabic settlements where they pulled up the Jewish farmers' foods, they terrorized them with rocks, the security forces broke children's bones, and they couldn't drive their own roads. We'd all have no problem understanding what that was. So there's nothing complex about it. The second part of your question, it's, it's a pure asymmetry relationship. And the question is rights or not. So that's it. It's not complicated. The second part of your question, at this point, there's always been, there's always going to be crackpots who are anti-Semitic who condemn Israel. That's not what drives the movement, it's particularly in the United States. If you work around most people who are concerned with this issue, it's actually populated with a lot of Jewish people. The real question we have to ask is why is it that APAC is hosting a information minister for Slobodan Milosevic? Why is it that there's relationships between the Israeli government and far-right parties in Europe? Why is it that Benjamin Netanyahu's son is posting borderline alt-right memes? Why is it that Israel is an alt-right state even though it is from the descendants of the victims of one of the greatest crimes in history? That's a serious question, and that's inseparable from the racism of the project, which goes back to the first part that we have to solve. But thank you. Shalom. There's no way out. Uh, if, if there's no water, there is no uh, way out of Gaza. What, what should we do? Like, drown? Like, commit mass suicide? Is this what Israel wants? And we're not going to do that.
And I was telling some somebody, some friend the other day that I am an academic. I probably the toughest thing I have at, at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis invade, if they urge us, charge at us, open door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker, throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I would be able to do. And this is the feeling of everybody. We are helpless. We have nothing to lose. You just heard from an academic living in Gaza who explained just how bleak the situation is. And towards the end of the clip there, that loud boom that you heard was actually a missile going off near his home. Now, that man is not a Hamas militant, but many people right now are conflating Hamas with all Palestinians in order to justify the atrocities that are being committed in Gaza right now by this man's government. But as Western governments greenlight an ethnic cleansing and war crimes... Everyone just seems to be okay with it. Everybody seems to be turning a blind eye. Media is only showing you one side. They're only showing you the suffering of Israelis, but not Palestinians. And if you're stunned by the brutality of Hamas's attack on innocent Israeli civilians, that is a very normal and human response. It is barbaric and shocking. But anger over that is now being used to justify unfathomable brutality against more innocent civilians who did nothing wrong. Brutality against people in Gaza who had nothing to do with that attack that we saw on Saturday. So I want to show you the side of this story that you're not seeing from media or hearing from politicians. And I want people to understand that fear and anger and ignorance is leading them, it's leading all of us as a society to accept atrocities on a massive, massive scale. For example, a member of Netanyahu's Likud party in the Knesset is calling for a Jericho missile to be used in Gaza, which is a nuclear weapon. Now, this comes after Israel's defense minister, Yov Gallin, called Palestinians animals and announced that food, water, and electricity will be cut off, which, by the way, is a war crime. But as a result, the Al Mezen Center reports that the Gaza Energy Authority announced that it has run out of fuel, which means that by the time you see this video, Gaza's sole power plant will no longer be in service, meaning that the population is officially in the dark, and that includes hospitals. They will no longer have the power to treat wounded civilians. And this news comes after Defense Minister Gallant announced that the Israeli military intends to commit more war crimes, as the Times of Israel reports, saying, quote, I have released all the restraints. We have regained control of the area and we are moving to a full offense. With Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying he has no intention of negotiating, a comment that received absolutely no pushback by President Biden, by the way. And this comes as the Israeli military spokesperson admits that the goal of their bombing campaign in Gaza is damage not accuracy, meaning that they're going to kill a lot of innocent civilians. And on top of that, there are reports that Israel is using white phosphorus bombs in the western port of Gaza, which is illegal under the 1980 Geneva Convention since they inflict suffocation and burning on people. Now, showing you a lot of this is against YouTube's terms of use, so I'm restricted in what I can show you. But I do think it's important to understand that the human suffering taking place right now in Gaza is incalculable. It's so utterly shocking that it caused this ambulance driver in Gaza to have a mental breakdown as he witnessed the carnage. 
بدي اشيل اذا في شريط كمان نجيبه ولا He is witnessing men, women, and children die before his very eyes. Our minds can barely comprehend that level of pain and suffering. And so when some of us see it, we just shut down, as he did, which is totally understandable. I don't know how I would react if I saw that much suffering. Now, let me remind you, all of this is taking place in what is effectively the world's largest open-air prison. Gaza is one of the most densely populated areas in the entire world, with 2.3 million people packed into 141 square miles, and about half of them are children under the age of 18. There's nowhere for them to go, nowhere to hide. Every single person is feeling the pain of this siege. Now, as evidence of Israeli war crimes continues to rack up, you'd think that there'd be international condemnation or even calls for restraint. And that would indeed be the case if we lived in a sane world. But we don't live in a sane world. And Western leaders aren't just turning a blind eye to Israel's war crimes. They are greenlighting it. Here's what labor leader Keir Starmer said in response to the collective punishment of Gazans. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself, um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power? Cutting off water? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the sort of core principles that Israel has a right to defend herself and Hamas bears responsibility for these terrorist acts. And I would call on all responsible states, particularly Middle East um, responsible states, to call this out for what it is um, and to stand with the world in condemning, utterly condemning, these actions by Hamas. The international community is condemning the actions taken by Hamas. But as you saw, he can't condemn the war crimes. In fact, he said very clearly that Israel has the right to do war crimes, even though he contradicted himself and said that they should follow international law. A siege is a violation of international law. But he can't condemn it. Now, Biden's administration is no different. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken initially tweeted out support for a ceasefire, then deleted that tweet once he got backlash. Now, Biden himself hasn't condemned Israeli war crimes, and he simply called for a proportionate response while vocalizing unequivocal support for Israel. But that's not to say that Biden doesn't care at all about the suffering of innocent Gazans, because he was merciful enough to at least allow them to be ethnically cleansed in lieu of them dying. For example, TikTok influencer Henry Sisson tweets, Amazing. President Biden is working on a plan with other countries that would allow civilians to safely leave Gaza and cross the border into Egypt. This is great news. President Biden is making sure that innocent people don't die due to the actions of Hamas. That's leadership. Yeah. Now, as Michael Wave correctly points out, this is ethnic cleansing. There is no ability for Palestinians who leave to return. This isn't a good compromise. This is a population transfer. Has everyone lost their minds? And I had the same thought when I read that. Now, Sama Sabawi explains how her grandmother responded to the news, saying, I told my family in Gaza to get out when I heard reports the U.S. is coordinating a plan to offer safe passage for civilians out of Gaza into Egypt. My auntie said, do you guarantee we would be allowed to return? I couldn't. I know ethnic cleansing when I see it. She refused to leave. Death or eternal refugeehood. What would you choose? 
And therein lies the problem. Rather than using his influence to coordinate a call for an immediate ceasefire by the entire international community, the Biden administration is essentially giving Israel carte blanche to level Gaza. And I need you to understand the United States government has a lot of power and say here. So every single day that the bombing goes on, it is a choice, a policy choice made by the Biden administration. Blood is also on his hands. Now, Biden is not an exception to the rule. He is the rule because like his predecessors and virtually all Western governments, excluding Ireland, well, they don't view Palestinians as human beings. They don't view them as people. Their suffering is never taken into account. Israel always has the right to defend itself, but Palestinians do not. Right. Israel needs immediate aid, but Palestinians do not. Israel needs an iron dome, but Palestinians do not. And understand that criticizing the actions of the Israeli government is not tantamount to criticizing Israeli citizens or the Jewish people. This is a government that is doing things. And what this government does is not representative of the people that they represent. I think that's really important to say. Now, the Biden administration in choosing to do nothing is effectively aiding and abetting a fascist prime minister who is hell-bent on genocide. And demonization and dehumanization of the Palestinian people has been the go-to method of the Likud party and Benjamin Netanyahu, and unfortunately, that strategy has been working. He even went so far as to ahistorically claim that Hitler didn't want to exterminate the Jews because the Muslim Grand Mufti of Jerusalem did. He convinced Hitler to do that. Because remember, Muslims are always the bad guys, and he will go to any length to make them look bad, including even defending Hitler. And also... Hamas, but don't take my word for it. Here's what he said about Hamas. Quote, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas, he told a meeting of his Likud party's Knesset members in March of 2019. This is part of our strategy, to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. So this is who Western liberal leaders are agreeing with. A far-right fascist whose goal is to wipe Palestinians off the face of the earth. He's not interested in negotiations or a two-state solution. He is interested in power and domination. And ironically, his rhetoric sounds eerily similar to the far-right in the United States. For example, let's hear what Lindsey Graham had to say about Palestine, and in particular, Gaza. We're in a religious yeah. war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself. Level the place. It's that simple. Level the place. Wipe 2.3 million people off the map just like that. No problem. Doesn't concern me at all. Just get rid of them. These people are monsters. Now, even though what he's saying there is obviously grotesque and he's saying the quiet part loud, that sentiment right there is effectively the policy that liberals like Joe Biden and Keir Starmer are adopting. The question is, why? Why do liberal leaders suddenly sound like fascists in the United States when it comes to this issue? And the answer is simple. Follow the money. Organizations like IPAC and Democratic Majority for Israel spend millions and millions of dollars lobbying politicians every single year at the behest of Israel. In fact, groups like DMFI specifically spend to defeat progressive politicians that advocate for Palestinian human rights. For example, Nina Turner had a 35-point lead over her opponent Chantel Brown, and it looked like victory was inevitable, only to later lose once Israeli interest groups began to spend big to defeat her. Now, to be crystal clear, the Israeli lobby is not lobbying on behalf of the Jewish people or even Israeli citizens. They are lobbying in the interest 
of the Israeli state, the Israeli government, right? And I think that that distinction is really important to make given the prevalence of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that propagate harmful lies about Jewish people using money to control the media and other institutions. That's wrong, and that lie must be defeated. But what we're talking about here is a government and not people. That distinction matters. And while the Israel lobby is large, it's not even the largest foreign spender in U.S. elections, right? When it comes to foreign lobbying, other countries like China, Qatar, Russia, and Saudi Arabia actually spend more than Israel. So this isn't an Israel problem. This is a money and politics problem in the United States. But if you ever wonder why our lawmakers make puzzling decisions like they support weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, even if they know that those weapons are going to be used on innocent civilians in Yemen, well, you can thank lobbying for that. Yemen doesn't have a lobby, which is why our politicians are more likely to do what Saudi Arabia wants, right? Yemen can't counter the lobbying that Saudi Arabia does. And the same is true in this instance. Palestinians don't have a lobby that can counter the lobbying that's being done at the behest of Israel. They don't have comparable lobbying power, which is why almost all politicians unequivocally side with Israel, no matter what they're doing. It's why we see liberal politicians like Joe Biden and Obama side with the far-right government of Israel when that seems ridiculous. It's why Democrats like Richie Torres attack his own colleagues for condemning Israeli war crimes. I mean, look at his top campaign contributor. It's AIPAC. Always follow the money. But I mean, even if you refuse that money and lobbying, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be indirectly affected by the lobbying of these foreign governments because even if you don't take their money well if you speak out against them they can bankroll your opponent and your career like that ask nina turner how that turns out which is why it's so rare to see politicians like rashida talib and Cory Bush, who speak out with clarity on this issue it's why we hear so much thirst for blood it's because these politicians are corrupt now, on the subject of Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian-American, just look at the way that politicians talk about her for simply saying that Palestinians deserve human rights. Now, she put up a flag in support of Palestine because she is a Palestinian. That's not going to change regardless of the circumstances. But pay close attention to what one of her colleagues said about Gaza as he's condemning Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib has the—I don't even want to call it the Palestinian flag because— they're not a state, they're a territory that's about to probably get eviscerated and go away here shortly as we're going to turn that into a parking lot. We're going to turn Palestine into a parking lot. He just said that on national television. All this because his Palestinian colleague displayed a Palestinian flag. Now, on top of that, he also introduced legislation to ban her flag, by the way. But just for fun, let's take a look at who his top contributors are. Oh, look, it's the same organization that donates to Democrats, APAC. Therein lies the problem. This is why every politician, regardless of party, sounds the same. They're all taking money from the same interest groups, right? Now, you often hear about college students and journalists being blacklisted because they participate in a peaceful movement against Israeli apartheid, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. But do you think there's going to be any consequences for a sitting congressperson saying that we should turn Gaza into a parking lot? Of course not, because that type of dehumanizing rhetoric is normalized in the United States and, to be fair, in Europe as well, especially in the U.K., 
So this is why we never hear about Palestinian suffering, because American politicians in both parties are paid to be complicit in their suffering and subjugation. And in theory, media could hold them accountable. That's what they're supposed to do. They are supposed to explain this conflict of interest that politicians have and call them out for it. But the problem is they're not doing that because they're complicit and also ignorant to an extent. Take CNN's Wolf Blitzer, for example, who spoke to an American doctor trapped in Gaza currently as they're being bombed. And he seemingly learned for the first time in real time that there's nowhere for citizens to escape when they're being bombed. You were there on a routine mission, a very important mission to, to, to take care of children. Were you prepared at all for this? Well, uh, whenever you go to Gaza, you always know that there's there's danger of some violence while you're there. But no, I wasn't well, I'm prepared for this. Let us know if you need Start. to go into some sort of a bomb shelter or whatever, because I can hear those explosions going off right near you. There are no bomb shelters here. Is there any safe area that you can go to? Yeah, um, actually, I have a sister-in-law who's Palestinian. She tells me to stay away from the windows, so I'm away from the window. Stay by corners of walls that are more fortified, and um, open your mouth so your your, um, your eardrums don't break if there's a lot of pressure. So I'm following her advice, and I'm in a safe part of the room. These are the people reporting on this subject, the people supposedly educating us about this conflict completely ignorant of the details. And that ignorance is then exploited by Israel in order to cultivate a very narrow view of the entire situation. As Mondo Weiss News Director Yumna explains, the Israeli military is taking foreign press on tours of sites where Israelis were killed. Israeli media reported that only international outlets have been allowed on these government-sponsored tours. No local media has even been allowed to approach. At the same time, no foreign press are being allowed into Gaza, and so audiences in the West are being fed constant images of their favorite reporters cowering on the ground to take cover from rockets being fired from Gaza. It's why we're seeing countless reports like this one, where journalists are regurgitating lines and talking points fed to them by the Israeli army about decapitated Israeli babies, claims that are going unchecked and unverified. By taking only foreign press into these sites and feeding them info, Israel is again taking control of the narrative on the international stage. Western journalists are more than happy to play along, failing to do basic due diligence in conveying these stories to their audiences. And by not allowing local Hebrew-speaking media into certain areas, Israel is shielding itself from the criticisms and growing frustrations of a population that could easily eventually turn on the government for failing to protect them. It's a win-win situation for Israel. It gets to put out to the world the images that it wants, dead Israelis, while limiting what it doesn't want the world to see or hear, real-life Gazans as human beings, and preventing its own people from the truth of its colossal failure, right? And it's very difficult to obtain accurate information during times of of war because you really don't know what's true and what's false. It takes time to verify these things. It's called the fog of war for a reason. I mean, even a video that you're looking at could be misleading because you could be seeing something that looks legitimate, but it could be old. It could be from an entirely different region of the world. So you've got the fog of war. And on top of that, you have the added issue of this curated one-sided narrative that journalists are accepting from the Israeli government without verifying and fact-checking. And on top of that, you have the additional layer of ignorance from pundits. And if the people in media are ignorant, then the people who are being educated by them are also going to be ignorant. So this is a problem. This is why people are seemingly fine 
with calls to annihilate Gaza from the face of the world. And Israel wants you to only see Hamas's brutality because they hope that that justifiable anger that you feel when you see it will cultivate support for their barbarity in return. They want you to think that their response is proportionate. It's called manufacturing consent. Now, Cosmic Slop shares how the baby beheading story hasn't been verified, yet it has been reported widely by mainstream media. And also, he points out how the German girl who attended the Israeli music festival during the Hamas attack thought to be dead is actually alive. And in response, Scarlett makes a really good point saying, do any younger folks wonder how the media tricked a bunch of Americans into supporting the Iraq war and more, or does this clear it up? And I think that's a really good point, and it's something that we should all keep in the back of our minds. Odds are, if you're watching this, you're a good person. I think most people are good people. And powerful people are either wittingly or unwittingly exploiting your justifiable sense of outrage over violence to justify genocide and ethnic cleansing. And you can't let fear and emotions persuade you. You have to think clearly and understand that all human life is precious. The lives of Israeli citizens and Palestinians are precious. But the media doesn't want you to think about Palestinian suffering. For example, look at the questions that a BBC reporter asked a Palestinian man who just lost six family members. Look at what she continues to focus on as he explains how dire the situation is and the pain he just experienced. They were just sitting at their home and they were simply bombarded. Their entire building was brought down. Uh, my cousin, uh, Aya, her two children, her husband, her uh, mother-in-law, and two other uh, relatives uh, died immediately, were killed instantly. And two of her youngest children, uh, a twin, two years old, are now in intensive uh, care. This is uh, truly uh, heartbreaking. And the issue here, uh, Kirsty, is that they have no bankers, they have no Iron Dome, they have nowhere to go. They are simply sitting ducks for the Israeli war machine. I'm sorry for your own personal loss. I mean, can I just be clear, though, you cannot condone the killing of civilians in Israel, can you, nor the kidnapping no, we don't of families? Condone. No, we don't condone. And we are very clear, uh, 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 Kirsty. We reject uh, any targeting or harming of civilians from all sides. And you are talking to a Palestinian representative, official, the ambassador that I represent my government, the PLO, the national okay. movement of Palestine. And we have been committed to this for 30 years, not just today or yesterday. For 30 years, since the signing of the Oslo Accords, uh, we have committed to non-violence. We have committed to negotiations, so you, as you know. Yes, and so so this so is you, nothing new. That's no. why this question, this question, uh, we have done everything in our power to find a different path. But we have a situation now, as you heard there from Mark, uh, that Hamas may be, it may be an empty threat, uh, threatening to kill hostages. You, do you condemn that kind of action? Listen, uh, hostages mu must be protected mm -hmm. and must be made safe and kept safe. Uh, uh, absolutely, this is, has, has no uh, discussion whatsoever. We, uh, we, we, we must return the moral uh, high ground uh, and Israel must immediately seize targeting civilians. And by the way, Kirsty, allow me to say this. This is an Israeli military doctrine. They call it the Iron Dome. Whenever there is such a, an incident, they go after the civilians to pressure the fighters. So you've heard one of the Israeli Well, we know there's been a lot just, of strikes Just two today. minutes ago, he wanted to starve the people in Gaza. He wanted to uh, cut electricity but, and water. These are war crimes, collective punishment. So uh, there is a possibility that both the UK and the European Commission 
will cut aid to Palestinians. What's your reaction to that? That would be very, very counterproductive and it doesn't serve anything. Well, they will do exactly what is Israel doing. They will do exactly the collective punishment and, and, and punishing the people who has nothing to do with this. My cousin is not Hamas. In fact, her husband works for the Palestinian Authority, the so, opponents of Hamas. These kids, four years and two years, have nothing to do with Hamas. Everybody, including the silly ideas uh, in the world, are punishing the people uh, that and have we nothing know, and we know to that do with this. And we know that children Kirsten. that are young are also have died in uh, Israel. So, in your view, is this a contained but appalling conflict between Hamas and Israel, or do you think Hamas want to widen the conflagration? No, it's Israel now that w wants to widen the, the, no, but, but, the scope. It's Israel but that Hamas wants to widen might the want scope. this whole area to be destabilized. Uh, well, well, uh, well, Hamas is a militant group. We are the government. Israel has a government. There is the international community. The first and the foremost important priority now is just to stop this madness. That was so frustrating to watch because like an NPC, she just kept asking the same questions. Yeah, I get that your family's dead, but do you think Hamas is bad or not? When he's explaining, he agrees with her, but she just won't take yes for an answer. And this is a microcosm of a bigger issue that we see with media when it comes to this. They just ignore the suffering of Palestinians. She's literally ignoring the suffering that his family has endured and just continues to ask him about Hamas. Now, in a different interview, he called out this double standard that's all too common with the mainstream media in the West. And I think that what he says here was important. And the mainstream media for, for 75 years, you, you bring us here whenever there are Israelis who are killed. Did you bring me here when many Palestinians in the West Bank, more than 200 uh, over the last few months? Do you invite me when there is such Israeli provocations in Jerusalem and elsewhere? Because Israel, what Israelis have seen, which we started by saying tragic, the last 48 hours, the Palestinians see every day for the last 78, uh, 50, 50 years. You know the situation in Gaza, you've just described it. And he is absolutely correct. And the reason why there's this callousness here is because Hamas is being conflated with Palestinians, which therefore places blame on Palestinians for all of the actions of Hamas. And that's a really convenient propaganda trick for a number of reasons. First, it justifies atrocities against Palestinians under the pretense that they struck first, for example. And also, anyone who vocalizes support for Palestinians is labeled a terrorist sympathizer because, again, in their eyes, Hamas and Palestinians are synonymous. Now, take Jake Tapper in the U.S., for example, who also promotes the same exact line of thinking. This does, these last few days have been a real uh, eye-opening period for a lot of people, a lot of Democrats, a lot of progressives, in terms of anti-Semitism on the left. A lot of people who seem more shocked at dehumanizing language uh, used by world leaders to describe Hamas than what Hamas actually perpetrated on Saturday. Yeah. So throughout this video, I've shown you countless examples of dehumanizing language being used. Did you once get the sense that I'm referring to Hamas? I am talking about Palestinian civilians who have nothing to do with Hamas. Now, you can point to anecdotes that are atrocious. For example, protesters were chanting gas to Jews at a pro-Palestinian rally in Sydney. BLM Chicago tweeted out a photograph saying they support Palestine with one of the Hamas paragliders. On top of that, some DSA protesters in Town Square were celebrating Hamas's actions. Now, Jake Tapper is likely using those examples to suggest that the left is anti-Semitic or supports Hamas. But this kind of reprehensible rhetoric 
is not a unique phenomenon to the left, right? And any leftist who advocates for Palestinian human rights is always asked if they condemn that type of rhetoric or if they condemn Hamas in the same way that Palestinians are asked if they condemn Hamas as they're explaining the suffering that their family is enduring. But politicians who unequivocally support Israel are never asked to denounce this sort of rhetoric. Fuck Palestine! Palestine to my dick! Kill all Palestinians, all of them. Not one left from the river to the sea. Palestine will be deceased. And Israel need to do like this. You see, now Gaza, like this. Gaza need to do like this. Oh, oh, like this. But all this, Jewish. Two options. What do, you, what do you think the response should be to, to, to Gaza? We gotta wipe them off the fucking That's map. It. I'm That's talking about oh, every fucking planting them like a parking lot. Yeah, wait, they're planting them out once every There's not, 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 nothing else you can do. They they proved to they proved to us that they, there's nothing else you can do. We tried and we tried everything. It doesn't work. We have to wipe them flat off the fucking map, like like a fucking parking lot. Yeah, I'm not stopping till all Arabs are wiped out. I think, I think now it's the time that we need to erase Gaza. There is people inside, our people inside, that kidnap, and now we need to kill all of them and free Israel. All, all of their beliefs is killing Jewish and killing and murder our people. Flatten it. Flatten Gaza. That was video footage from a pro-Israel rally in New York. And, uh, you know, the call to flatten Gaza like a parking lot sounds pretty familiar. I feel like I've heard that before. As we're going to turn that into a parking lot. Mm, that's right. But, you know, there's no calls for this kind of rhetoric to be condemned. None. Imagine if roles were reversed for a moment and an Israeli who just lost their family in a Hamas attack was asked repeatedly, do you condemn that? Do you condemn what these people are saying, completely ignoring the pain and suffering that that person is experiencing and trying to talk about? I think most people can understand that that would be unacceptable because it is. But the reason why they're able to turn their brains off when it comes to Palestinian suffering is because, again, they don't view Palestinians as human beings. They've been dehumanized, hence the dehumanizing language that we're condemning. Now, my point in showing you all of that is not to resort to whataboutism and imply that one side's genocidal rhetoric is okay because the other side is doing it too. The point is to demonstrate that, again, you're only getting one side of the picture. You're not getting the full story. People who advocate for human rights are portrayed as anti-Semitic Cretans who support barbarism against innocent Israeli civilians when that's not the case. All we are saying is that using one atrocity to justify a genocide and ethnic cleansing against a population of people who had nothing to do with what happened on Saturday is wrong. But nobody's willing to say that. And this dehumanization of Palestinians is reinforced through media again and again. It's reinforced by our politicians. And it's also disseminated by people with very large platforms, like ignorant celebrities. For example, Justin Bieber tweeted out a picture that says, Pray for Israel superimposed over a picture of destruction in Gaza. Now, as David Grizzcom puts it, Palestinians don't even get to own pain in U.S. media. It's simply given away to Israel. And he's exactly right. Jamie Lee Curtis did the same thing. She made a post on Instagram in support of Israel, writing terror from the skies with an Israeli flag, not realizing that this was a picture of Palestinian children 
children being bombed by Israel. And while Noah Schlapp from Stranger Things called for peace for Israelis and Palestinians, he also conflated Palestinians with Hamas, writing on Instagram, you either stand with Israel or you stand with terrorism. It shouldn't be a difficult choice. Shame on you. Now, if this were an ordinary 18-year-old or 19-year-old, however old he is saying this, I just think, listen, you really need to work on your wording because you worded that in a very clumsy way. It sounds like you're saying that you think Palestinians are terrorists, and I hope that that's not what you mean. But the problem is that this is no ordinary young man. This is somebody with a very large platform. This is a celebrity, and a lot of people follow him. But the problem is that what he's saying isn't going to get much pushback because he's just parroting the name, the mainstream narrative, right? He's effectively putting out this idea that is popular and prevalent that if you don't support Israel unconditionally, if you don't support this far-right fascist government who's overseeing a brutal regime of apartheid who wants to wipe Gazans off the map, then you must support terrorists. It's a binary choice. Support fascism or you support terrorism. There's no nuance allowed. But again, this idea is just something that we see. It's ubiquitous, right? He's just parroting what he sees. So the media has failed here. Now, believe it or not, media has gotten better over the years, but there's still a lot of work to be done, obviously. But as it stands now, the media is likely going to continue to manufacture consent for war crimes and genocide in Gaza by repeatedly showing you exclusively images of brutality from Hamas and never showing you what's happening in Gaza. Now, to be fair, it's very difficult to get accurate information and images from Gaza when they don't have electricity. But if you want to be informed, the information is out there. And listen, you're right to be outraged by the brutality of Hamas. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or you're a bad person or you don't care about Palestinians if you are hyper-concerned about the suffering Israelis because you have family there. You're right to be outraged by that, of course. But remember that Israelis aren't the only people suffering right now. Many people are suffering. Palestinians in Gaza already had no access to clean water. Most of them did not have access to clean drinking water. They struggled to get the medicine that they needed. And now they just lost power and they're being bombed to death. And people around the world are celebrating their deaths and calling for them to be extinct. So, I mean, all I'm saying here is that if you turn a blind eye to that, then you don't have the moral high ground. So it's really important to understand that as calls for genocide get louder, as politicians and media pundits tacitly and uh, overtly endorse the extinction of Palestinians, understand that these are real human beings and they are not responsible for the actions of Hamas and treating them that way is completely unacceptable. Innocent civilians, women and children are dying right now. And I think that if you care about human suffering, you should care about them too because they are human beings, contrary to popular belief. Literally every single change that Elon Musk has implemented since taking over Twitter has been incomprehensibly stupid when it comes to basic functionality and overall usability 
everything that he has done has made the platform demonstrably worse. And those who use Twitter know that I'm not being hyperbolic. But on top of that, it's also become a safe haven for bigots as well as Nazis. And most recently, it's become evident that Twitter is now a massive cesspool for misinformation and fake news, which is sad because Twitter used to actually be an important tool for journalists to deliver up-to-date information. But now that utility is almost gone thanks to Elon Musk for a number of reasons. First and foremost, Elon Musk stopped using software that is supposed to identify misinformation. And to make matters worse, he's recommended accounts that routinely spread misinformation. In a now-deleted tweet, he recommended war monitors and sent Defender for users who want up-to-date information on the Israel-Gaza war. But as journalist Matt Bender points out, here's one example of how unreliable the two accounts that Elon Musk promoted are. There was an obvious AI image posted in May depicting an explosion at the Pentagon. This would be very easy to verify. Instead, both accounts immediately shared the fake image in order to go viral. And this is a direct result of the incentive structure that Elon Musk created, where engagement and virality earned you money, but accuracy does not. Now, on top of that, someone responded to news that the Israeli prime minister told Gazans to leave ahead of his siege and pointed out that there's nowhere for them to go since they're blockaded on all sides. Now, one of the accounts that Elon Musk recommended responded saying, better find a boat or get to swimming, lol. Now, let me just first point out the obvious. It is utterly despicable to laugh about innocent civilians, most of which are children who are soon going to be bombed to death. That is gross. But as a supposed disseminator of on-the-ground war news regarding this conflict, you would assume that they'd at least know that Gazans also aren't allowed to flee by sea as well, considering the fact that the Israeli Navy is blockading them by sea as well. It's not just the big fence that locks them into Gaza. They also cannot leave via sea. But according to Elon Musk, this is someone who we can trust. But while one of the accounts Elon Musk promoted laughed at Palestinian deaths, the other is viciously anti-Semitic. Matt Bender shared these screenshots of the replies saying, mind your own business, Jew, and go worship a Jew, lil bro. Yeah. So he promoted one news account that hates Palestinians and the other that hates Jews. I mean... Maybe this is his way of giving us a both sides take on this. But obviously, he ended up deleting that endorsement of these accounts. But even though he withdrew his endorsement of those two hate-mongering accounts, he still regularly interacts with very hateful accounts on a regular basis. That includes libs of TikTok, whose tweets have encouraged nearly a dozen bomb threats. And on top of that, he's interacted with Peter Sweden, a Holocaust denier who was fear-mongering about Muslims in Sweden. And on top of that, he interacts with bigoted far-right account and wokeness, who shared a picture of Muslims in London, calling it a ticking time bomb, to which Elon Musk responded, saying demographics is destiny. And as Wild Geerders points out, up, this is straight up neo-Nazi shit. Any company still buying ads on Twitter should be boycotted. And they are absolutely correct about that. But while we're on the subject of ads, Twitter's new ad format makes it so that way a plethora of insane bigoted ads can't be reported or blocked, nor do they disclose the fact that their ads, which by the way is illegal as good politic guy and the community notes pointed out. So we've watched the world's richest man devolve into a fascist over the course of a year. And as he goes down, he's taking Twitter with him, which isn't just sad. It's troubling because this has real world ramifications, right? His radicalization 
spells doom for the rest of the world. And journalists are now explaining how difficult it is to get accurate information out in this environment that Elon Musk has fostered because now they're effectively having to compete with verified users spreading fake news and misinformation because that's what gets clicks and engagement. Wired reports, for many reasons, this is the hardest time I've ever had covering a crisis on here. Justin Peden, an OSINT researcher from Alabama known online as the Intel Crab posted on X. Credible links are now photos. On the ground news outlet that struggle to reach audiences without an expansive blue check mark. Xenophobic goons are boosted by the platform's CEO. End times, folks. When Peden covered the escalation in Gaza in 2021, the sources he was seeing in his feed were from people on the ground or credible news agencies. This weekend, he says verified content or primary sources were virtually impossible to find on X. Boosted by the algorithm that promotes users willing to pay X $8 a month for a premium subscription, posts from those with a blue check mark shot up to the top of news feeds for people seeking information about the conflict. Rather than being shown verified and fact-checked information, ex-users were presented with video game footage passed off as footage of a Hamas attack and images of fireworks celebrations in Algeria presented as Israeli strikes on Hamas. There were faked pictures of soccer superstar Ronaldo holding the Palestinian flag, while a three-year-old video from the Syrian civil war repurposed to look like it was taken this weekend. As a result, Pedin says that he and his fellow OSINT researchers have to spend their time debunking years-old content rather than verifying and sharing real footage from the conflict. And as this Bloomberg headline puts it, the Israel-Hamas conflict was a test for Musk's ex, and it failed. And ironically, you wouldn't actually be able to see that headline if that article were shared on Twitter because Elon Musk chose to remove headlines to make the site more aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. So as much as I complained about Twitter before as a toxic hell site before Elon Musk took it over. This is one of those situations where you really don't know what you've got till it's gone. Because love it or hate it, Twitter was useful in disseminating accurate information. Sure, there were issues with fake news before he took it over. Sure, it was still very toxic as a social media platform. But whatever usefulness it once had is now non-existent thanks to Elon Musk. But to his credit, in destroying Twitter, he also destroyed the myth of meritocracy simultaneously because those who assumed anyone with wealth had to be intelligent are now realizing that our capitalist system isn't as fair as they once thought it was because most people, I think, can clearly see that Elon Musk is not a genius. In fact, he's a giant dumbass. So on this program, we've talked about a number of Republicans who have been exposed for a plethora of reasons, ranging from grooming children to endangering and nearly suffocating children to giving alcohol to minors and indecent exposure, you name it. And in covering all of these stories, I've noticed a bit of a trend. The more anti-LGBTQ plus the Republican in question is, the more bizarre their scandal turns out to be usually. It's almost like their fixation on queer people is a tacit confession of some sort of skeletons in their own closets. But I promise you, you are not going to be able to guess why this particular Republican got into trouble. I'm talking about Joseph Viso Jr., who is running for New Jersey State Assembly. He is a vaccine-skeptical MAGA Republican who often complains about illegal immigration and thinks that Democrats are communists. But one of the most important issues to him is seemingly 
parental rights. And that's because of his anti-LGBTQ plus disposition. And on his mailer, it's the number one issue that he lists, parental rights and education. And I think that we all know what that means. He also mentions family values later on. And on Facebook, he claimed that LGBTQ plus people are coming for your children in response to an article alleging that a nonprofit was sneaking, quote, gender lessons into schools, whatever that means. And he also shared a post on Facebook signaling his support for the outing of trans kids to their parents, likely not understanding that that could result in child abuse if the parents aren't affirming. So now that you know a bit about him, just try to take a wild guess as to what sort of dirt just came up about him recently. Just think of the craziest thing that you can imagine and then multiply that by 10. You ready? He literally smeared shit on the doors, locks, and doorknobs of a daycare. And somehow, that is not even the most shocking part about this story, because that award goes to the excuse that he used for said behavior. This is a wild one, so buckle up. HuffPost reports, Viso had a dispute with the daycare center, which was next to his business, and he told the Globe that daycare employees harassed my men every day. They had cars ticketed every time my men parked on a side street. At some point, he said, he decided to get even by smearing poop on the handles and locks of the child care facility. After the investigating officer told Viso there was video evidence of his poop smearing, he apologized and said, I'm not proud of what I did. He told the Globe that he later cleaned up the dookie stained doors. It was done before anyone got hurt, he said. I'm not going to defend it, but wait for it here. I was a young man. It was a horrible time, and I made a mistake, Viso52 said. Obama came into office the year before. <laughs> no, he is not blaming Obama. That would make Viso about 39 at the time, an age when most people have learned not to smear poop. <laughs> oh... He smeared shit on the doors of a building where children go to, and he blamed Obama. You know, just when I thought that I've seen everything, a new GOP candidate comes along and just blows my mind. His excuse was he was in a dispute with his neighbor. Uh, he was also distraught over Obama's victory. So, you know, why not get even and uh, smear shit all over the doors of this daycare? Again, where kids go to. Now, he says that the uh, reason why this dispute took place was because this daycare, which was next to his electrical business that he owned, uh, was getting his employees ticketed, calling the police on them. But I mean, the question is, why would that owner of the daycare do that? Was there a valid reason? Were you know, they parking illegally there? Were they trespassing on top of that? There was allegations that the daycare claims that you know his employees were blasting loud music that was inappropriate right next to a daycare. So I think that I need more context to determine why this dispute even took place because knowing what I know about him, I just have to automatically assume that he was in the wrong. And on top of that, the fact that he couldn't settle this amicably and resorted to shit smearing says so much about the way that he'd behave as a lawmaker. Like I said, the most anti-LGBTQ plus politicians are usually the ones with the most bizarre scandals. But that's not all, because LGBTQ Nation adds, in 2016, Viso pleaded guilty in federal court to one count of conspiracy to distribute methylone. Police charged him with possessing 5,000 grams of it, enough to make 5 million ecstasy tablets, synthetic and pathogenic street drugs. He said he sold the drugs to help pay for his cancer treatments at the time. In 2014, 
Visa was charged with illegally possessing a sawed-off shotgun near a school and sentenced to two years probation for it. He said he pleaded guilty because he couldn't afford a lawyer. In 2013, he was charged with possession of heroin and smoking materials. He pleaded guilty to possession with intent to use drug paraphernalia. Wow. Now, the article brings up lawsuits for non-payment of bills, along with the fact that he owed over 200 creditors, more than $3 million combined. But I don't think that being poor is a crime, so I don't find that scandalous. But I do find his excuse for distributing meth alone genuinely heartbreaking. That is, if he's telling the truth, which I have my doubts about. But just for a moment, let's be extra charitable to him and assume that he is being honest there. He says he sold drugs to pay for cancer treatments. Listen, as a leftist, I think that healthcare should be free at the point of service to everyone, including Republicans who smear shit on doors. And in theory, you'd think that an experience like that would shape his worldview, except it seemingly hasn't. So I recalled seeing a mention of healthcare on his mailer. But when you read the details, or what you can make out at least, since the image quality is shittier than the fecal matter that he smeared on doorknobs, you can see that this isn't about healthcare. It's a reference to his anti-vax sentiment, which reads, protect individual right to bodily autonomy, ensure safety and transparency in medical recommendations and the metrics used to suggest them. Now, to be clear, he is not talking about reproductive healthcare when he references bodily autonomy. Autonomy. He's referring to the vaccine mandates that were temporarily enforced during the height of the pandemic. And I just find this so bizarre, so weird. I mean, he's had life experiences that allow him to relate to working Americans, aside from the shit smearing, of course. I mean, the poverty, him having to sell drugs to pay for cancer treatments, assuming he's telling the truth. That's a Breaking Bad-esque story. So, even if you're lying, just the fact that you lied about that tells you that you know that healthcare is an issue. Why not link that to medical debt? He also filed bankruptcy before. The number one cause of bankruptcy is medical debt. Like there has to be some sort of mechanism in your brain that gets you to think deeper about these issues because you want to be a politician, right? He was also busted for possessing heroin. Why not advocate for drug decriminalization or even gasp legalization? Because he doesn't want to do that. Instead, he's on Twitter sharing memes comparing Joe Biden to Hitler, denying global warming, promoting ivermectin as a treatment for COVID, and doing January 6th apologia, just to name a few things that he's posted about. This is why Republicans fucking suck, because even when they have experience that should theoretically help them appeal more to working Americans, assuming that he's telling the truth, again, they waste their time on dumb bullshit like that. Although, to be fair to him, shit is something that he knows a thing or two about, so it's pretty appropriate. But I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It, it shows why this party cannot be taken seriously, because they are incapable of talking about substantive issues that actually need to be addressed. But I'll admit, now that a uh, Republican candidate has literally smeared shit on the doorknobs of a daycare center and blamed Obama for it, it's going to take a lot more for the next scandal to impress me. Like, we're going to have to see a blippy level scandal. Don't Google that, by the way, but we're going to have to see something like that if I'm going to be shocked by it. But I mean, yeah, another family values Republican who wants to protect children from LGBTQ plus people got caught doing something outrageous. He smeared his shit on a building, literally. And what's interesting about this story is that I'm not even a little bit surprised. Like, it's shocking. The details are certainly shocking, but 
this is something that I think is absolutely within the realm of possibility when we're talking about GOP politicians. So I'm not surprised and I doubt that you were either. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.